while our children are in the process of dismissing, I want you just to oblige me for a moment. And uh, just everyone who's not leaving, close your eyes for a moment. And I just want you to shut your eyes tight. And um, as I'm talking to you, I just want you to um, experience something. Having your eyes closed, not being able to see, is uh, kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? I want you to think about what it would be like if this were your life. This were your life, this darkness you're experiencing right now. Not just for one minute, but what if it was for an hour? What if for the next hour you had your eyes closed? What if it moved beyond an hour to a day, you decided for a day to just have no sight? How frustrating would that be? Move that out to a week, to a month, to a year. What if for a decade you had no sight? Now just push this out to a lifetime. What if this were your lot in life that you were unable to see? Leave your eyes closed for a moment, please. On the screen right now, which you can't see because your eyes are closed, is an incredible picture of a sunset. And it's got these, these purple and, and blues and about five shades of pink and the way that the, the light blue sky captures the clouds and the light bouncing off it is utterly remarkable. The unique thing about this sunset is the way the light is coming through the sky. It's pointing to this single tree. It's winter time, and there's these branches that are shooting out, and it looks like this light is shooting down onto this tree. And truly, it's a remarkable, unique sunset, but you can't see it. Now, what if someone had to describe to you what your child looked like? Describe for you what your relatives looked like. Describe for you what you even looked like. I'll tell you what gets about a little bit uncomfortable about having your eyes closed this time. Leave them closed is that you start to begin to wonder if your kids didn't leave and they're not touching you. Are they still hanging out with you? Is someone walking off with your purse? Are you the only one in the room with your eyes closed and everyone else has their eyes open? There's just a lot you don't know and you can't experience. With your eyes closed, listen to this verse, Matthew 6, 22. This is what Jesus said. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, open up your eyes and take a look up here for a minute. Aren't you thrilled that you could obey the command I just gave you to do? Open up your eyes and look up here. Your eyes may have to adjust the light a tiny bit. Let me just ask this question. How important is your eyesight to you today? I mean, it's huge, right? And you just go without it for about two minutes and you begin to realize that. I, I doubt many of us woke up this morning and just... Praise God that we could hear the songs that we just got to hear. That without much struggle at all, you're able to hear and interpret what I'm saying to you. That most everyone in this room will be able to read everything that goes up on the screen. And if I open up 
a book you can, you can look at it and read. And we use these faculties and these senses without really paying attention to it sometimes. What you just experienced is, is a little short parable of what goes on in John chapter 9. It's a guy who's been blind from birth. And literally, at the command of Jesus, he's told, much like you just were told, open your eyes and look up here. And much to his amazement and everyone's amazement, he's able to do that. If you have your Bible this morning, I'd invite you to open up to John chapter 9. And we're going to try and tackle, I told you this last week, we're going to try and tackle John chapter 9 this week. And as is the case probably for any passage of Scripture anyone could ever preach through, there's always more there for you. Anytime you're listening to a sermon, to a to someone teaching the Bible, there's always there more, more there for you. So we're going to touch on a few different things. But I'd encourage you, I hope some of you took my challenge last week, just to read through John 9 and be prepped this morning for what you're going to hear. And, and even ask the Lord, just God, what do you want me to hear this morning? What is it that you have for me? I want to touch on two main ideas. There's all kinds of things we could talk about. Here's kind of the two big ideas. And if you have your notes, you can follow along with these as we kind of go along. I'll bring up some other ideas. But here are the two main points that I want you to catch. One is that Jesus gives sight to the blind. I just don't want to miss that miracle. That's the most obvious basic thing. But that's, that's a big part of what John chapter 9 is about. And that's a powerful statement. Because we have a very generous church. I want you to know that. This has been a phenomenal week of ministry for me. I'm, I'm at the same time exhausted and totally exhilarated today. It's just a lot of stuff's been going on. What's really amazing is that I've just gotten to see the body of Christ function like the body of Christ this week in a really powerful, unique way. We have a very generous body here at Neighborhood Bible Church, but not many of you are, are dishing out eyesight to people, Right? I mean, you write a check here and there, you help, you know, people across the street, uh, you know, whatever. But you're not dishing out the gift of sight. The fact that Jesus gives sight to the blind is a very powerful statement. Here's the second thing. The blind cling to their sin and unbelief. That's the whole other side of the story in John chapter 9, is you just see those who see are blind, and the guy who was blind gets to see. And it's just one of the many paradoxes in all of Scripture. But John loves this. John, the way he writes, he loves double ring and double meaning going on. John chapter 9, we're going to just read. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to read large chunks of it. So you can follow along with me as we go, starting in verse 1. It says this, as he went along, talking about Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Verse 7 says this, Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. Let me stop there for a moment and pray. Father, would you just take this next few minutes and um, 
Use them to glorify you, to show off who you are in the many unique ways that we need to hear and receive. God, would you open up our eyes? We sang earlier that you made our eyes so that we could look on you. And I pray, Lord, that we would um, set aside this time, our hearts, our minds, our reason, our ears, and devote them to you and listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this, this passage even that we just read kind of brings up a lot of different things. And um, just as we kind of get into it, uh, I just want to point out a couple of things. Verse 2 um, his disciples, you know, asking this question. It's kind of like they're following their teacher and, you know, they raise a hand. Teacher, I have a question. Teacher, I have a question. And so they, they bounce this question off of him. And even in the question, there are just some, there are some subtle assumptions that are built into the question that I want to point out. Remember we talked about this common knowledge. Be wary of common knowledge and what's just normal. Because there's a certain sense, Jesus said it this way, why does the gate, why does the road that leads to hell and to death and narrow is the road that leads to life? When a ton of people are going and thinking this way, sometimes there ought to be cause for caution for us. And there was an assumption in the day of Jesus that there was an absolute one-to-one direct correlation 100% of the time to someone's health and sin. And when someone is sick, it means someone is sinning. And so the disciples fire this question off just using their common knowledge. They're wanting to fix blame. They're wanting to, to figure out something about this guy. Here's a little side point that I'd point out. In our core values, one of the things that we have under worship is that we just say, as a church body, we are going to strive to allow wonder and mystery to be a regular part of our worship service. Here's what that looks like. It looks like this. When someone like me stands up in front and claims to be teaching God's Word, doesn't claim to be teaching God's Word, attempts to teach God's Word by His power, there's going to be a sense of humility there. There's going to be a sense that says, this is big, heavy, weighty, heady kind of stuff. And I don't claim to have a corner on the truth, but this is how I read it. And part of community groups is keeping that dialogue going. Here's what I would challenge some of you in this room. Some of you need humility when discussing the Scriptures. You need humility when you're discussing God. Because sometimes I think there's a tendency for us to speak about things as if we really know them completely and have it all figured out. We may not even realize really that we're doing this, but we may be going off of common knowledge. Bible college taught me some great things. I got to study and live with people from all over the world, all of whom claim the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Guess what? People in South Korea think a lot differently than people from San Jose. My roommate and I figured that one out pretty quick. My other roommate was from India. Guess what? People from India think a lot different than people from San Jose. So it was really good to say, we believe the Bible to be God's word. Let's figure this out. But it began to teach you a humility and say, you know what? I've been taught this all along, but you know what? I can't really find much scripture to support that view. That's more of a tradition. Gosh, there are some other views that other Christians have that actually make a lot of sense. Maybe there needs to be just some humility on both sides of, this, of the discussion when thinking about things. Assumptions can be dangerous. Secondly, this, his followers see an opportunity for a theological moral discussion. 
right? Hey, Jesus, let's talk about this guy. Here's a blind guy. Let's grab a cup of coffee and talk about the theological implications of blindness. And who, who, who sinned? Was it his parents? Was it him? What's going on here? You know what Jesus sees? He sees an opportunity for a miracle. He sees an opportunity for a changed life. So instead of staying back and discussing theologically about people's problems, Jesus wades into the problem and begins to treat the guy like a person and begins to address his needs. That's who we're following. We're following the one who doesn't stand at a distance and have Bible study about pain and sin and divorce and struggle and doubt and death, but rather wades in with people, meets them where they're at and says, man, can I enter into what's happening here? It does bring up the problem of pain here. That's a common thing that a skeptic of Christianity would say. If God's an all-powerful God... Why in the world doesn't he stop the pain and the injustice that's going on? It's a fair question. Probably on varying levels today, there are those of you sitting here that just ask this. Why is pain there in my life? Why is this going on? Where are you, God? I've cried out to you like a thousand times. You're nowhere to be found. In theological discussion terms, you'd call that the problem of pain. Where is God in our hurt? Why doesn't he stop it? Here's the problem of pain. Let me just, let me just give you some basic things. And this isn't, this isn't what the overall message is about, but it's a, it's a subplot. Due to the fall, when sin entered our story, and sin always separates, sin always leads to death. That's what the Bible teaches. When that happened, we became immediately sus, uh, susceptible and affected by the fall, and by sin, and by death. And uh, just by the, the, the nature of things, sickness became universal at that point. Here's the reality, is that sin, and sickness, and tragedy will affect every single person in this room. If it's not affecting you right now, it just will. You know why? Because we live under a curse as long as we're in this body, as long as we're on this earth. We're going to look at that some more in just a little bit. But that's part of life under the fall, is that sin enters the world and causes death and separation. A couple of just tips, points. One is this, don't, don't live in fear of this. Jesus offers hope. Jesus offers a way out. <clears throat> and so don't live your life. Don't spend your life living in fear of it. That's one of the great mysteries of the cross, is when it says that he conquered death, he took the sting of death away and says, that's no longer the greatest fear. The greatest fear in your life is God. And now you're on his side. So that's what gave Paul the courage to say, hey, for me to live is Christ and to die, it's gain. I mean, and his captors were so frustrated by this guy. You know, it's like, you want to kill me? That's fine. I'll go be with Jesus. That's a, that's a great gig. Where do you want me to stand? They're like, what? Fine, we're not going to kill you. Okay, I'll help the churches. We'll just grow this thing. You know, it's just frustrating. It'd be so maddening to have Paul as your prisoner. But, but he, had, he had learned that. He learned not to live in fear of pain and death. And he knew about it. He went through it. Here's the other thing is don't live to avoid it. So many people have their number one priority to say, I, I just want to avoid uh, pain and suffering and sickness. 
And so to get a phone call that, that has the cancer word in it or to, to have, you know, a doctor's checkup and there's all this anxiety wrapped up in it because I live to avoid pain, that just saps the energy. And, and that's not the way God wanted us to live. So don't live to avoid it and don't live in utter fear of it. First Timothy 6, 6 says this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Our Friday morning men's group is studying a book called The Practice of Godliness. And we looked at this verse this week. And here's what I would say about pain and, and, and all of that is many of you in this room, while you could list different hurts and sufferings, you're, you walked in here on your own accord. And like I just talked about with your eyesight, you can see. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me just focus on the word contentment just for a moment. If today you were to go outside this door and go visit the down and out, you know what you would be? You would be extra thankful tonight for a warm meal and a clean pillow as you lay your head down. That's just how it would go on. You go visit the sick and you'll praise God for your health today. You'll thank Him for things that earlier in the day you may have taken for granted. One of the thrills of being a pastor is I get to visit newborns a lot. Cool part of the job. You know what? When you visit a newborn, you come back to your preteen, teen, whoever's copping an attitude in your home, and you thank God for that person. And you are rejuvenated in the relationship of going after that kid's heart and saying, God, thank you. Thank you for that kid. Even though he's driving me bonkers right now, I praise you for that kid. Lastly, if you serve the mentally handicapped, you know what you'll do? You'll begin to be thankful for the ability to reason. Here's here's the picture. You begin to give your life away. You find your life. And guess what? It's right there in front of you. It's been with you all along. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What are you pursuing? The side effects of the fall are universal. I just want to encourage you, follow Jesus' help in, follow Jesus' example in helping those under the curse rather than sitting back and asking theological questions or going through workbooks on different good deeds we could do as Christians. Studies on what it means to be the light of the world. Seminars and talks and endless books we could go by at Berean today on how to have a prayer life. You know what? Just go pray. Just go be the light of the world. Take what you read in Scripture and do it. You know what? Jesus always did more than just show up on the scene, though. His being there, you being there with a sick person is communicating love. But Jesus always was moved to more. He was moved to action. I want to read here, starting in verse 8, and just pick up the story and talk for just a second, because it's just we haven't touched on this yet. Jesus has already done several healings in the book, and Jesus' healing ministry is something really important to look at. There's always kind of lots of debate that surrounds healing ministries and, and miracles and all that sort of stuff. And, and there's, there's no difference as we look at the scriptures today. It's, it, it went on in Jesus' day. It, it goes on now. Look at verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. 
he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Remember, he'd never seen Jesus, right? Jesus isn't around. He's heard his voice. They know he calls him Jesus. I don't know what the guy looks like. Verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which the Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Don't you love how simplistic that is? Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. There goes common knowledge, preconceived ideas, right? He's doing this on the Sabbath, clearly not from God. Um, but others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. There's the debate. There's the controversy. Um, 17. Finally, they, they turned again to the blind man. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Verse 19. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one who um, you, you say was born blind? How is it then that he can see? And we'll stop there for just a moment. Pharisees don't like the answers they're getting, so they keep drumming up things. And we'll kind of get into that more later. Let me just focus on healings just for a second. Healing is all throughout the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's in the early church. It's an important part of the scriptures. But I want to just say something to just kind of give you an overarching thing. And we're not going to dive into healing and faith healers and all that kind of stuff this morning. But I do want to say this. It was most acute. It was far and away mentioned the most when Jesus Christ walked the earth. And he began his public ministry later in life such that he really only had about three and a half years of walking on the earth doing public kinds of miracles and healings. And far and away, if you take all of Scripture, it's concentrated in those three and a half years. That's where most of the healings occur. I say that because it's not normative to have your sickness miraculously healed. You need to know that is, that is not normal. And so those who would say that every time you get sick, you're doing something wrong if you're not healed. That's a problem. That goes against Scripture. It goes against what it teaches. And if you were to just do a timeline of all of, of, all of recorded history, you would see some healings in the Old Testament spaced out, at least the ones we have recorded. And then this just, you know, if you graphed it, I mean, just high concentration for three and a half years. And then some, and then not really much beyond that. Some abuse and manipulate healings and miracles. I'll tell you where this is best documented is in movies and TVs that are showing the fakes. And they're just painting Christ and Christians and anyone of faith in a really, really bad light. The Simpsons has made an art form out of this. But you watch in movies, you watch in TV shows, and it's, it's revealed how these things happen. It's people wanting to explain away the supernatural and the miracles. And usually Christians aren't necessarily put in the best light with that. Some, because of this abuse, kind of go the extreme, the opposite way. Such that they, they, they just say, nothing supernatural can happen. Healings aren't for us anymore. God doesn't move in any of that. But there again is a lack of humility, isn't there? People have asked me, Dave, do you think God does healings? My usual answer is, I'm not God. Would I limit God to some certain period of time, and that's the only time God can ever do healings and miracles? God just made 
some spit mud and put it on a guy's eye. I don't, he's God. That's not really my department. Could God choose to do something tomorrow that he's never done before? Yeah. Ask the people who put a rod inside of the Red Sea and it decided to stop so they could cross. Kind of a new one. God hadn't really pulled that trick before. So can God do something tomorrow that I've never seen before? Absolutely. But my other side of that is this. If it's God at work, though, I think it'll be crystal clear that God's at work. I don't think I'll have any question that it's a sign from God and that it's a real miracle. I would just venture to say this, that to be a thinking, biblically faithful Christian, you can neither ignore miracles nor just blindly trust every last person who's claimed to be miraculously healed or touched or changed or whatever else. You need to find that balance in some ways. Remember that Jesus' miracles are also called signs. In other words, they were pointing something out. John is laying out miracles or signs, as he calls them, to say this is the Messiah. This is a guy from God. Let me just blast through a couple things here really quick. Jesus healed in in a variety of ways. And um, as far as just looking through some of the characteristics, Korea, are you back there? I am pushing my button and nothing's happening. Can you um, can you take over? Click once for me. Okay. Um, Jesus healed in a variety of ways. Here's number one. One is that he healed with only a word or a touch. And um, basically, he didn't need to conjure up emotion or whip people into a frenzy. He didn't need to go through a long list of things. I think about how, you know, I love Lord of the Rings, how Gandalf at times, you know, blows it in his little things. He's trying to make, you know, someone turn into a rabbit and he kind of, you know, muffs it a little bit. Jesus, you just go through the scriptures. Jesus healed with a touch. Jesus just healed with a simple command, a word. Just like I was able to say, hey, open up your eyes and look up here. I didn't have to whip you all up into a frenzy and do it. He just did it. That's how Jesus healed. Let me try, let me try taking over here, Gria. Nope, still dead. Next one. Jesus healed instantly. There was no question whether these things recorded in Scripture were natural effects of time or whether they were a miracle. In other words, if I, if I claim to have healed someone's fever, but I said it's going to take about six, seven days, something like that, you'd go... Cool. Keep your day job. You know, that's just not real. That's just natural time, right, taking, taking place. Jesus' touch, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' healings were instantaneous. Thirdly, Jesus healed completely. The immediate results were significant. There were lame people not just barely getting up. They're picking up their mats and cruising home, right? There are blind people who could fully see. There are people with withered hands uh, sick women in bed who began to get up and wait on people who had just healed them. I mean, it's a complete and significant healing. Fourthly, everyone who came to Jesus was healed. In other words, he was indiscriminate about it. There wasn't just a certain group of people that he had kind of paid off on the side and said, hey, at this time I want you to come and you know we're going to stage this thing a little bit. There's an authenticity seen in this the spontaneity of his request. Someone came to him. Someone touched a robe. Someone came to his, you know, as he walked by like this beggar, and the person was healed. Fifthly, there was organic physical diseases and sicknesses that were being healed. In other words, they were real. I'll tell you a characteristic of a fake is someone who says, yeah, uh, 
I'm going to heal this person of this invisible back pain that no one in this room can see, but this person knows about it, and I know about it because I'm talking to the Lord, and we're going to heal this thing. And so the people sitting there go, okay. Based on the person's back pain testimony, I guess that was a miracle. Woohoo! And some people are just, just blindly follow along. Anyone who says they're speaking for the Lord, they just go, cool, we'll go along with that. That's not being a thinking, shrewd Christian that God would call us to. That's disengaging our minds. Jesus healed things like legs, bent spines, deaf ears, blind eyes, withered hands. Nothing was off limits to his power. Such that Matthew 4 records this. He healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Jesus was a real faith healer. Here's the sixth thing. This is the clincher. He heals dead people. Okay, some claim to see dead people, you know. Uh, he healed them. That's a big deal. It doesn't happen often in Scripture, but that's a really, really big deal. And that's a sign. And that's why even in this passage, they say, who among you has just heard about this? That people who are blind receive their eyesight. This is not normal. This is supernatural. Here's a question I would ask for you just as you're processing this. How many ministries, healing ministries, have the worship and glory of Jesus front and center of their ministry rather than the miracle or sign itself? I'll tell you what I tend to see in very public, um, well-known, popular kinds of healing kinds of things that cause question to me. The one in the spotlight is the one doing the healing, the people being healed, or the miracle itself. Jesus is kind of a way of getting to that, but Jesus isn't on display. Jesus did all of this that his Father in heaven would be glorified. And he was sent that he'd be glorified. All right, moving right along. Jesus gives sight to the blind. Go ahead and click the next slide. Now you're just going to have to follow me, Gria. We're going to, we're going to do this old school. Um, Jesus gives sight to the blind. Uh, just fun questions to ask as you're reading through the Bible, as you're going through the Bible as a couple or as a family, as an individual. You know what? There's a lot of great studies out there. And buying a study, I'm, I'm all for that. But you know what? Just a little bit of reasoning and training and thinking. You can take your Bible and you can just go out to a park and have all these tools at your fingertip and start to get into God's Word in a way that starts to draw it out for you a little bit. Here's a question I would ask. Just as you read this, you know, what's, what's the deal with the spit mud that Jesus put on the guy's eyes? Why did he do it that way? And if we, if we had the time, we could break into groups and just think about this a little bit. Now, you might just go, let's breeze by that and get to the, the good stuff where there's argument or car chases or whatever else. But it's kind of important to sit there and look at that and go, here's a methodology, Right? That Jesus did. Let me just throw out some ideas. One is to add variety to his healing practices. Jesus didn't seem super big on protocol. He just seemed to like heal someone differently each time. I think there's truth to be found in that because sometimes I might hear about Rick and how, and how he got out of debt and how God just miraculously provided for his needs. And so I come alongside and I go, well, I'm going to do everything that Rick did. You know, I'm going to take Spit mud. Put it on my eyes and go wash that same pool. It must be the mud. It must be the combination of saliva and this earth right here and something about that pool. There's some kind of chemical reaction and the miracle happens. It's none of that. So Jesus doesn't just take the same thing and do it over and over. Isn't that true in our lives too? 
seems like there's just this individual thing that he's got going on. And the way he heals one person often is very different from the way he heals someone else. Maybe he did this to provoke the Pharisees by healing and making mud, both of which were Sabbath breakers, because both of those were considered work. You heal someone, you're busted for working. You, you spit on the ground and make some mud. I guess kids were in trouble for doing that too, but you're busted. You can't do that. You know, maybe he just did that to kind of whip this up and, 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 and get some good conversation going. Here's a thought I hadn't really thought of before, but maybe it was to gain the man's confidence. There, were, there was a common knowledge thought that saliva had healing properties. So maybe just to meet him a little bit halfway and to start to edge toward him, he used some saliva in the process. Maybe his faith wasn't quite big enough to just go, right now, go wash in the pool. Maybe he needed that. Isn't that just neat to think about? text doesn't tell us. We don't know, but it's interesting to think about. Maybe it was to give the man a part in the healing process. Wasn't just here. Here's, here's the whole gift. It's this dance that they're being invited into. It's a relationship. It's a give and take. It's you can't heal yourself at all, but I'm going to give you a role in this. I'm going to give you a part in this. And by doing so, the guy had a part in his own healing in that he took a tiny step of faith. He's probably getting this mud pack put on. He's like, well, this is kind of weird. But it can't hurt. Man, I've been blind since birth. I'm going to go try this thing out. The faith of a mustard seed. And God just does this amazing miracle. Here's the point of all that. We don't know for sure. So let's not turn into a cult and go off on mud making and thinking, you know, that somehow, you know, that's that's the big deal now. We don't go and speculate. But it is good to dive into that and just think about that a little bit and and go, Lord, why, why is that? You can ask Jesus when, when you meet him. <laughs> uh, but, but it's good to think about things a little bit broader than just blasting by it. The heart of this story is really a radically changed life. Here's what's so great is Jesus had so much more in mind for this guy than just sight, didn't he? He wanted whole, complete healing. And it's true for us as well. He has more for us in mind. It often starts with physical or perceived needs. But he wants to move beyond those things that we see to things that we don't see. Real needs that we have. I'll tell you part of why this is such a great story is because the recipient, this blind guy, he moves from kind of the initial surface gift to the real gift who's right before him, and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. I think some people tend to mistake church and Say, oh, I've tried Christianity, I've tried God, I've tried the whole Jesus thing, I've prayed the prayer. And I think what happens is they came and they settled for the wrapped package and said, here's the gift of God. And you go, wow, neat. I mean, it really is pretty. It's got a nice bow and some really shimmery, you know, wrapping paper. Neat gift. And they set it aside and go, kind of useless though. That's the person who comes and says, yeah, I had a good, friendly church experience. I met some really nice people. We had a few nice Bible studies and barbecues together. We had something to go, you know, do on the weekends, and and it was kind of a neat deal. But I tried church. It just doesn't work for me. That's taking the gift and just going, yeah, it's a neat gift, without ever opening it and really getting to the heart of the gift. This is all peripheral, what we're doing here even. This isn't the heart of the gift. This isn't the real gift. The real gift is a relationship with Jesus. And there's other people recorded in Scripture that came along, were healed by Jesus, were given a gift. Some didn't even turn back to say thank you. 
Some did and received it and went no further as far as we can tell. No more relationship, no more pursuing of who Jesus was. No more asking the next question. Gee, that's pretty radical that I was just given sight. Maybe I ought to go something a little bit deeper. In a way, they're settling. Verse 35, let me just read for you the the back half of this chapter through the end. Verse 35 says this, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. There's some discussion going on earlier. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, Tell me so that I may believe in him. Do you hear how many times the word believe is in here? Remember John's premise? Jesus said, You now have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that the blind will see, and those who will see, those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. You and I were born with sore eyes. This blindness I'm talking about is spiritual and it's an epidemic. It it affects us all. Think of it this way. I, I don't know if you're like me, but I can cruise along life and think I have some problems or whatever. But the second you take something like an eyelash or a little pebble or whatever and you poke it in my eye and leave it right there, do you know how high of a priority it becomes to get that thing out of my eye? You know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden, getting dinner, that's way down the list. Kids, you can starve for all I care. This thing's got to get out of here. Driving, man, the appointment you had, thinking about the things you have to do, suddenly this is what you have to do. This needs to get out of my eye. It's causing me immense pain. Here's the, here's the rub. What if, what if it's true, like the Bible says, and it is, that we're born spiritually blind. We're born with, with that in our eyes. And yet somehow we have no perception of it. We're born blind, but we think we see. The same urgency is there, but there's no perception of a need. There's no perception of pulling over, of stopping everything and getting this figured out. And this Pharisee was in that place. What, are we born blind too? Or are we blind too? And Jesus says, man, because you don't even see your need, your guilt remains on you. Go ahead and click the next slide. The blind cling to their sin and unbelief. We're not going to read 20 to 34, but here's the bottom line synopsis of it, okay? The bottom line synopsis is that the unbelieving skeptics pick up the parents and say, okay, now we're going to question you. Is this your son? Was he born blind? They didn't really... Uh, the, the, the parents were scared to death of being thrown out of the synagogue. So even though they said, we don't know how it happened, they knew how it happened. Because it says later on, there's some commentary from John, it says they were afraid of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees had already predetermined, anyone who claims Jesus is from God, you're out as a heretic. Then they, then they bring the guy back in. And they say, come, tell us again. He basically says, look, I've already told you as plainly and simply as you want. Do you want to hear it again because you want to become a disciple as well? He's really bold. I love his sarcasm. That's sarcasm in the Bible for you right there. Use it in moderation. But you know what? He just says it quite plainly. 
And you know what they do? They go, you're, you, you were born seeped in sin. They just go the verbal attack route and jump all over this guy. Bottom line is this. When a skeptic and an unbeliever investigates the claims of Jesus Christ as a skeptic and an unbeliever, there's only one answer they can come to. The answer is, clearly Jesus isn't God. So now let's figure everything else around to see how that fits in it. You could do this with evolution and creation. I know creation's wrong. So now let me just think through all of life and figure out how to fit everything in so that that leads to that description. My family and I walked through the Monterey Bay Aquarium on a Friday. There are some cool creatures out there. They're still discovering creatures in the ocean that with all of our massive technology and wisdom and vast knowledge, oh, we haven't seen that one before. Whoops. Here's a cool little thing called a leaf dragon. Sure glad he evolved that. I mean, I just, I, I walk through and I marvel at some of this. Now you could do this exactly the other way as a, as a believer in creation and not use your head and not use your reason in these things. But here's the skeptic. Here's the unbeliever. I don't like this person's answer. Bring someone else. Give me the blind guy again. Maybe he'll contradict himself. His testimony is so simple and so straightforward. He didn't contradict himself. They didn't like his answer, so they hurled insults at him. You know, we just know that this is true in life, don't we? Some of you have people in your mind right now that you're thinking, yep, true. Some of you in this room might be feeling, yeah, that's been true in my life. That might be part of your faith story. That might be part of where you're at right now. I want to just bring up some question of why this is true. Go ahead and click the, the next slide. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The man without the Spirit, go ahead, Gria, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These things we're talking about this morning are spiritually discerned. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you know why skeptics and unbelievers hang on to their blindness? Because there's a spiritual enemy at work who's blinded their eyes. We're not just born neutral in all of this. And if you allow for a minute to lay down your skepticism and look at this critically and enter into a dialogue about this, maybe you'd begin to see and have some light shed on that that says, yeah, maybe there's truth to this. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This guy was born blind. He was helpless to see unless... Jesus decided to move and act. If you were to trace your own spiritual journey back as to what led you sitting in church this morning, I would venture to guess, if you could really think about it, that there was a drawing there. There was a stirring there. It wasn't that one day all of us in this room decided, we need to get really good. We need to start dying to ourselves. We need to start giving up a life of sin. The Bible says there's not one who does good. Not one. So all of us are helpless in our sin unless God pursues us. 
But then we respond. Go ahead and click the next one. The only cure for blindness is belief in Jesus. This blind man, as we close, is an excellent model for belief and conversion. There's lots in here that you should emulate. Just a simple story of belief, but also conversion. He responds. Let me just blast through a couple of these. This man's world had absolutely foreclosed on him. Sometimes we think about blindness today and we think about, you know, braille on the ATM machines and all kinds of social services that would help blind people. None of that in Jesus's day. If you were blind, you were just below almost everyone and you had to resort to begging to make any kind of a living. And then with the social stigma of saying, oh, by the way, you're blind because you're sinning. Just quit sinning. And you won't be blind anymore. The guy was born blind. So there's social stigma attached to it. This guy obeyed even though he couldn't see how it would help. I don't think he had heard of other people who had gone and washed at this particular pool and been healed. He couldn't see that, but he took steps of obedience anyways. Listen to this. He allowed Jesus close. Wouldn't it be easy as a blind guy who's just had your lot in life that experience we had for the first couple minutes of this service with darkness all around you, that darkness would probably begin to pervade your very soul and your outlook on life and your feeling towards other people. But instead, he allows Jesus close enough to come and touch his eyes. He trusted him enough to take the saliva in the mud and begin to move forward with it. He also moved beyond the initial miracle to the person behind the gift. That's what verses 35 to 38 are all about. He gave clear and courageous testimony. He stood strong in the face of persecution. This guy was a brand new believer. He was hurled insults by huge authorities of the land that had power to boot him out of the synagogue and out of social circles, which was a big deal. And he just stood for the truth. He gave simple, clear, courageous testimony. Finally, he personally received and believed in Jesus. He didn't rely on his parents' faith. Thank God for him that he didn't do that. His parents' faith wasn't that strong. They were worried about man's opinion versus God's opinion. They actually lied to the Pharisees because they were worried about what they could do to him. Let me invite the band back up. And as I do, I would just ask you this morning, how's your spiritual vision this morning? Would you say as you sit here, oh, I'm 20-20, I'm good. Maybe you come in here and go, and I'm 2,200. I'm blind as a bat. Maybe you'd say, probably legally blind, but I don't really like to think about it or talk about it because it's a little bit disheartening. I think spiritually, sometimes we're nearsighted, farsighted. Maybe you would say honestly this morning, you know what? I've been really growing with Jesus this year. But if I'm really honest, there's some blind spots that I have. I don't even know what they are. But I know there's some things in my life that I'm just blind to. I need a touch from Jesus. I need to take steps of faith. The invitation that Jesus offers to those who are blind spiritually is this. I am the light of the world. Remember that verse we read at the start? If your eyes are darkened, your whole body is full of darkness. We're going to sing a song called Amazing Grace right now. And as we sing it, I would put this invitation out to you. 
Maybe some of you in this room just need some prayer. We're going to close this service a little bit differently than how we normally do. It's a little bit of a curve to the band. But I'm going to have the band play play through this song and then just linger on this song a little bit. After the song's done, Rob, I'd like you to pray, and then you'll be dismissed. But I'd like you just to be dismissed in kind of a quiet mode this morning and let this place be a true sanctuary for people. Maybe you need to stick around and just pray. Maybe you as a spouse need to just stick around. Our children's workers will keep good care of your kids. Keep your claim check. Maybe you need to hang out a couple of minutes and just pray together as a couple and humble yourself and confess and say, God, I, I need a touch from you. I've been, I've been the blind person who's been bitter and kept you at arm's length. I don't want to coerce anyone into staying here, but the invitation to follow Jesus, the invitation to be in relationship with Jesus is alive and well today. Maybe you need to open your life up to him for the very first time. I'm going to be sitting right up here. In fact, I'll just watch for you. If you want to come and talk to me, uh, if you have logistical things, talk to me later. I don't want to talk about that. I want to pray with you. We have community group leaders in here as well that would be happy to pray with you and come alongside you. Let's sing this song and let's just dismiss this morning with an attitude of reverence and, um, and listening and following what God would lead us in.